Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. I have with me Anna Marie Carusi, who is an academic in medical humanities for many years and is now in private consulting doing social studies of science for policy formation. Today, we want to talk a little bit about bodies and about medicine, and also about disease containment in our environment. And what I'm hoping we can do today is sort of elaborate on some of those issues and questions, and I'm excited to have you with me, hopefully that you can kind of uh, break some of these things down for us today. Welcome. Thank you, Brandy. Perhaps we could um, start talking a little bit about the biomedical model, um, which is the dominant uh, model in medicine currently and has been the dominant model for quite some many uh, decades. And what the biomedical model does is that it identifies disease with something that is inside the body, some physiological entity or some process in the body. Right. So the biomedical model is literally looking at specific aspects of unhealth in the body. That's right. That's how it identifies unhealth, disease or illness as something within the body. And you say that this is, uh, has actually been sort of brought under pressure in some of your work. And um, I think today, especially as a really good time to talk about this, because if we're describing diseases and bodies and the boundaries of disease, the outbreak of coronavirus offers us a chance where I think we really have an opportunity to investigate these concerns. It does. Um, of course, at the moment, we are under this uh, huge uh, challenge of the coronavirus, and a lot of the effort is being directed towards um, developing a treatment for those who um, have been infected by the coronavirus so that the focus gets placed on what is happening in these diseased bodies and how can we treat it, how can we eradicate it. Of course, if we look more broadly, the coronavirus appears to have um, emerged in our environments. That is in a particular kind of market where there are animals both dead and alive, and animals, a wide variety of animals, uh, including animals that are not standardly a part of human diet. And it seems that it is in these conditions that the leap from an animal virus to a human virus uh, made. And it's uh, very interesting, though, that all of the focus is pushed towards a biomedical response to this. Mm. A biomedical response that will enable us essentially to carry on our social behaviors as before and will leave that more or less undisturbed, allowing us simply to carry on our social and economic behaviors while focusing the uh, attention onto a biomedical remedy. And that's what the biomedical model does. It's, it's not only a scientific model, but it's also an economic and cultural model. So let's, let's break that down for a moment, if we could. Um, what you're saying, it, it seems to me, is that there's, there's a number of different factors here, and it's that we tend to focus on the product, the, the specific, the vaccine or the treatment, 
when in fact it's a it's a much larger problem. Um, I could compare this to, for instance, us trying to fix small aspects of climate change, but not addressing the larger climate change. And so this seems sort of similar in that way, because you're saying there's practices and behaviors, uh, human beings not um, not recognizing the influence of the environment on their own health, not recognizing their impact on the environment, that leads to situations, not that it causes the disease itself, but that leads to situations where these kinds of leaps can be made. Um, and I believe this happened with SARS as well. Uh, it was originally a virus among animals that leapt to the human population. Is that correct? Um, I'm not an expert in that field, but I believe that that was the case, that SARS and coronavirus have that in common. Uh, but of course, we see that these very close interrelationships between bodies and environments in many other cases now. And in fact, it's interesting that the science is kind of trying to nudge us out in many respects, is trying to nudge us out of this tendency to see disease as enclosed within an isolated body, uh, which has to be treated in some kind of way. So, uh, for example, um, we've seen a lot of recent attention has been paid to the microbiome, and that is all of the bacteria and the fungi and uh, and similar organisms which live either within our bodies or on our skins um, and in our throats, in our mouths, um, in our gut. A lot of attention has been paid to the gut microbiome. And of course, these um, uh, these uh, the microbiome is very uh, influenced by the environment. It is the environment in us, in in a way. And of course, it's a very interesting thing because it is both in our bodies, in the most intimate recesses of our bodies, in a way. But it is not of us. It is not a human thing. Um, and it connects us with with the environment and has a deep effect on uh, human health. We've seen it, for example, on um, the kinds of uh, there's been a connection made between the microbiome and depression. Uh, there's been an, and many connections made between the microbiome and immune disorders of various kinds. Yes, I've heard so that. So these are all ways in which we are the body and the environment is much more interconnected, intimately interconnected than uh, we often hold to be the case. Right. We have a somewhat of a myth of boundaries that we contend with. We think that there's insides and outsides of bodies and that, that there are ways of containing things when, in fact, that is a much more complicated issue. There's much more at stake because uh, I do know um, historically that when we first began treating, so using antibiotics, we weren't realizing that there were good bacteria as well. And so, of course, if you're wiping out all bacteria, you're also wiping out good bacteria. So it's, it's, a, it's a balance that we, um, I think, still struggle to understand. And in fact, the antibiotic example is such a good example because it affected, uh, not only treated uh, people with infections of different kinds, but changed the nature of the bacteria uh, that are affecting us and coming from the environment so that there is a to and fro between mm -hmm. ourselves and the environment. And, um, and, and these aspects of science are making us much more aware of this to and fro passage between uh, bodies and, and the environment. Yes, and I think um, it, it, the issue of the environment looms large in all of these discussions. Um, I do know that there's a an increasing focus um, on one health or or a kind of sense that the environment is part 
of health and not something that can be entirely ignored by the medical community, though traditionally uh, we sort of drew a boundary around that and said medicine is about, you know, treating human bodies and health and, and the environment is for environmentalists. But I think that we're increasingly seeing that this is not um, that crossover is necessary, that building bridges are really necessary. And in fact, I think medical humanities is a, a good way of doing that, where you do have these, these connections being made among groups of people. I think medical humanities has got a crucial role to play in this because it places um, disease and health and our conceptions of disease and health um, in a much broader context. It's also not afraid to do a critique of these dominant frameworks for thinking about disease and health um, and also to do the kinds of social and cultural analyses that displace uh, their dominant position. So, for example, medical humanities questions the biomedical model in many different ways. Um, in, in the first way, by showing the role of um, the non-physical body, the embodied body, the body of the mind of experience, the lived experience of the body. So that's one of the ways in which the medical humanities questions the biomedical model. But I think that these further ways of questioning the biomedical model is by considering our interrelationships with the broader environment, with other species, um, within our social and cultural contexts. Mm. You know, it puts me in mind, um, so I'm a medical historian myself, and one of the things that always fascinated me was the cholera outbreak uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I live. And the cholera outbreak was, the, the population had tripled in size, and they were pumping uh, sewage and other things directly into the lake, um, which is where, on the Great Lakes. And they were also bringing their drinking water in from the Great Lakes. And so naturally, uh, cholera began to turn up um, associated with certain pumps, certain pump stations, which were closer to where the outputs from sewage um, happened to be. And you did have, um, it wasn't that there weren't some public officials actually aware of this and saying, hey, I, I think there's a connection here, but it was labeled as Asiatic cholera. And they immediately, um, I mean, it is called that, but they immediately associated that with uh, with the influx of immigrants, and so essentially, they basically um, in the in the public imagination, the immigrants were responsible for bringing cholera, and in fact, that wasn't the case at all. We were poisoning the water. But there's a situation where it's the environment, it's pollution in the lake, it's the fact that the lake pollution is then being pumped into certain service stations, and that most of the service stations that were infected were in the poorer communities. Not surprisingly, um, because the wealthier communities had been built later and had pump stations further out into the lake, uh, and they they corrected the problem. They they corrected the problem by basically <laughs> building. They didn't stop polluting the lake. They just built further intakes out, you know, five miles out into the lake. But the stigma against the immigrants as having caused the disease remained, and that's a really good example of something that you know, that's a social problem. That's not just a, you can't just treat the, you just can't have biomedicine come in and treat that biomedical problem. It's it's a much, much bigger cultural issue. Uh, that's right. And in fact, um, that it's, it's very interesting. The cholera example is a very interesting uh, example of the ways in which social and cultural factors and economic factors come into play with which are the diseases that we are dealing with at any particular 
um, such a historical moment. And currently, for example, we are, well, for many decades now since the Industrial Revolution, uh, we have been dealing with environments that are absolutely pervaded by industrial chemicals, thousands um, if not hundreds of thousands of industrial chemicals in our environments. Um, and um, and there too, the sciences are pressing us to change, in fact, to, to change our, our whole approach to how we deal with this. Um, so, for example, currently testing those chemicals to the extent that we can test them is done on uh, by testing them on non-human animals. And, um, of course, this raises many questions concerning the animal welfare and so on that I won't talk about now. But what this does do is, again, treat disease as something that happens to an organism. And the idea is that you look, you expose an animal to a chemical and you see what happens and then you try to extrapolate what will happen to a human body. And in that way, though, you're not asking you're trying to understand that something happens, that some chemical might have an adverse effect, mm -hmm. but you're not considering how does it actually happen. Whereas the sciences now, the toxicological sciences, are, are looking at much more mechanistic approaches which try to open up that black box and which look more mechanistically. Just uh, quickly, by mechanistically, I, I'm assuming you mean uh, looking at the, the interrelationship, so it's not just looking at the chemical and its effects, but what happens when this is in groundwater, what happens when this is in soil. That's right. So you can follow pathways from the chemicals in the environments into the body when they become from they, they, uh, the molecules as the body is exposed to molecules and kind of biological pathways that then occur. So you're kind of like once again looking across these pathways, these processes, as they pass to and fro between the environment and our bodies. And of course, the environment here is many things. It's the food we eat, it's the cosmetic products that we use, it's the cleaning products that we use, it's the air that we breathe, the water that we drink. There are chemicals in all of these things which, which make up our environment. And the environment also enacts upon, correct? Yes. Because, uh, for instance, the clothing detergent, which becomes a sort of estrogen-based compound once it hits the environment, which nobody had really foreseen. That's right. It goes back into that environment. So we have a kind of a circularity that happens between our use of these products. They pass through our homes or through our bodies. They go back into the environment and you get this kind of a circularity. And we see these that we are very are intricately interwoven with our environments. And if we follow this on a mechanistic level, that is following the processes that occur, it's very hard to draw a firm boundary around the body um, and to say, well, this is of the body and this is of the environment. And of course, many of the, these products, many of these chemicals uh, do affect health our health as well as plant health and animal health. So, for example, many of them are involved in the causal chains leading to, to cancer mm -hmm. or otherwise uh, endocrine disruption, for example. These lead to reproductive issues, uh, reproductive health problems. Um, the pollutants, the chemicals in, in the air lead to many lung diseases and lung disorders. So there, there are all of these interconnections, whereas, you know, with a biomedical model, we focus only on what is happening on the body. But many of these approaches are now saying to us, 
step back, zoom out a little bit, mm-hmm. to try to look at it more broadly, more holistically, and look at these interconnections. And they're not that useful for us any longer to be thinking of isolated bodies, not related with their environments, rather that we should consider them as very intimately interconnected. And I would like to just, uh, as we're finishing up here, to cycle back to the social consequences of uh, of this, because I think um, as in the cholera example, and we're also seeing it with coronavirus, the um, the willingness to blame and to sort of say, oh, these these people or this group of people caused this, this is a a disease caused by this type of person, um, that comes up again. And we're already seeing uh, discrimination and stigma attaching to the coronavirus, um, much as we did with SARS, and uh, to the point that people are calling it sort of an Asian disease, which, of course, for me, sends me right back to the history of cholera and the way that we were so willing to blame. And so I think the social consequences of not understanding the, the larger picture, the, the environmental pathways, the connections, the fact that bodies are not bounded, that the environment is in your body as well as outside it, are things that are really valuable to know and, and in fact, crucial to, to share with the public so that we don't have um, this blame game that replicates itself every time there's a, a major health catastrophe. And so I think that these are really, really important issues. Um, Just before we sign off, I would really like it. um, I know you you do some consulting work and uh, much of what you do is is in trying to bring these um, these social studies of science into the public. Can you say a little bit more about that before we say goodbye to our audience? Uh, Well, the sciences currently are addressing very complex uh, social problems such as uh, climate change, such as the chemicals in our environment, um, such as the challenges of um, antimicrobial resistance, they often uh, need to be taken into consideration the social aspects of science as much as they take into consideration the science itself. And they often don't really have the tools to do so. And uh, of course, we as uh, historians of science, as sociologists of science, as philosophers of science, do have a lot of, uh, of experience and knowledge of these, um, these processes of science, these more social, cultural, economic even processes of science. And so we have a lot to contribute to the way in which science is currently undertaken in order, especially if it is going to address some of the deep challenges that we are currently faced with. And that is the work that I do is to try to bring these perspectives, um, either myself or if I can, at least I know who we might go and ask Mm -hmm. to give us expertise, relevant expertise. For example, I often ask historians of science or anthropologists to come along and give their perspective. Mm-hmm. And I know that your work originally began in in academic settings, and so I, I just want to just want to point to that because I think um, it's really interesting to me to see how much medical humanities is not actually bounded by the academy, but actually stretches beyond into other kinds of systems and hopefully into policymakers as well. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thank all of you listeners for being here with us. Come back again, and we hope you too will join the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Facebook.